Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm well, but how are you? You seem very busy gearing up for COP. COP26. How, how is your, um, what are you, the pop cop? How is your shadow pop cop role going? A pot cop, shadow pot cop. We're still some way off as where we need to be as a world. Um, I think it's going to be sort of slightly extraordinary, but I think the whole world is going to descend on Glasgow. It also feels like the eyes of the world are on this more than... Any cop yes. I can remember. I had a, a taxi driver talking to me about cop. Are you serious? You're serious? Yeah, it seems to be cutting through to, to people in, in real life in a way that perhaps people who don't follow these things as closely weren't aware of at previous ones. Are you saying that the Danish cop at which I was the Rico representative <laughs> didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't on the lips of taxi drivers? quite in the same way i think you're probably right i have to say i saw a video of myself from the danish cop the other the one i did in the war up to the danish cop i mean i looked a lot younger <laughs> i mean i was a lot younger of course of course and, and on that subject i've had quite a few people text me i haven't seen it myself yet but text me to say how lovely it has been to see your fresh face in the background of that new Labour documentary that they've been showing on the BBC. Which I haven't watched because I sort of thought it was sort of hard enough to have to go through it without <laughs> having to watch it. Uh, uh, I don't want to, I don't have to relive it again. Do you think I should have participated? I didn't participate in that documentary. I, th- I sort of think if you're an active serving politician, it's harder to be a sort of in those, in those things. Do you know what I mean? Did they ask though? Well, that is, <laughs> that's a really, I mean, that, I mean, that is a good, I mean, that is a good point actually. Um, that is that is a good point. I have sort of news to report, despite the cop and everything. And I'm and I should say to the listeners that I I fade out in a couple of the interviews this week, and I apologise for that. It's it's sort of cop and various other things that I've been dealing with. But I have sort of exciting news, which is that my wife borrowed my swimming hat, which I think I have modelled on a previous video, haven't I? I think so yes, because we're getting we're getting into that time of year when it's sort of the water gets cold. And I'm basically, I, you know, one of those things where I looked everywhere for my hat and couldn't find it, and then and I then ordered another hat, and I'm actually quite, I'm actually quite pleased this has happened because I'm quite excited about my other hat because it's a sort of matching hat with my gloves and my, it's a brand. I'm not going to mention the brand um, in case people get funny ideas about me promoting brands, but uh, it's got the matching socks and gloves, and I think it might keep my head a bit warm. But anyway, Justine was like, "Oh, I borrowed your," I was like, "Where the." 
hell is my hat? Anyway, she said, oh, I borrowed your hat. And I was like, oh, right, okay. Um, but anyway, I'm quite excited. I will report back on this hat. I think this hat could make a big difference. Okay. Well, we... So I've got high hopes. I've got high hopes for this hat. You've got high hair as well at the moment, I notice. Is that affecting things? High hair. Well, I'm hoping that the high hair is going – it's the John Kerry look. Um, uh, um, in fact, John Kerry actually said to me when he was at Kew Gardens – I don't know whether I said this to you – he kept saying to me how grey I looked. Was he negging you? Well, I was thinking, okay, John, okay, but he is sort of somewhat older than me. I was like, you're quite grey too. I mean, <laughs> he's like, gee, you've gone grey. I think he's, he, he's obviously been watching my Copenhagen videos as well in the run-up to <laughs> – let me ask you a question. Doesn't your wife have a, a much smaller head than you? I think of her as quite a small-headed person and you as quite having quite a large cranium. And I say this as somebody uh, myself with a large cranium, which is also quite grey. Oh, it's interesting. We have a developing and mature relationship, Jeff, but one of the things you've never commented is on the size of my head. <laughs> it is it's a large it's a large I head. mean, you are actually right about this. I mean, you obviously, you know, you you could go into sort of hat fitting, I think. I remember because you having some right. issues. There I'm was a large one woolly hat that would fit you at one stage. Oh, that's good memory. I'm a large. Mm. I'm definitely a large. I paused, I, I kind of hovered over, was I a medium or a large? And I am indeed a oh, large. Oh no, that's that, that's definitely a big head there. That is it's a big head. And, and Justine, I think, has, has quite a small head uh now should we talk about what we're going to talk about yes well as we said um ed will be coming and going during this week's episode as he has to uh, go and attend yeah. to his duties as as pot cop but we're, we're going to be talking about libraries and as you'll probably know here in the uk public libraries have faced severe cuts for more than a decade Here's a grim number nearly 800 have closed across the country since 2010 and we're going to be talking about the vital role that libraries play in communities and, and sort of exploring some of the ways that libraries around the world are adapting to changing times and, and redefining what a library can be. So first, we're going to be talking to sociologist Eric Kleinenberg. Now, Eric is the author of Palaces for the People, which is about his argument that libraries are one of the shared public spaces crucial for building social solidarity and should therefore be a priority for government investment. Then we're going to Denmark, where there's a library. We're going to Denmark. We're going to Denmark. We're going well, to literally, we're going to go to Denmark. Sadly, not. I mean, it's oh, no. didn't you? Didn't you go there once? Aarhus in the middle of us in the middle of Denmark. Um, did I go to Legoland in Denmark? I think I did. Did you? You didn't stop at the library while you were there, though. Uh, I didn't stop at the library while I was there. No, I don't that I remember. I should have done. You should have done because this, this place is spectacular. It's world-renowned. It's called Doc One. And we're going to be asking uh, Maria Ustagor about it and, uh, and the future of libraries more widely because she um, she uh, is, is something she's given a lot of thought to and seen a lot of examples from around the world. And then finally, uh, we're going to be talking to Isabel Hunter from the charity Libraries Connected about the situation here in the UK, it's not all bad news, uh, and we're going to hear about how she thinks that the government should be supporting libraries in the future. And then our cheerful person this week, and I was so disappointed that you didn't get to talk to him, because often on the podcast we'll meet people who who worked with you years ago. This was somebody who worked with me years ago. Wow. 
Who's that? Henry Normal. He's fantastic. He's a, he's a poet and has been for years one of our finest stand-up poets. He writes really beautiful poetry and he's very funny. But really, for the past couple of decades, he's been better known as a writer and producer. He's He was one of the uh, people behind the royal family and Mrs. Merton and uh, lots of stuff with Steve Coogan, a lot of great British comedy stuff over the past couple of decades and he's back to his first love which is poetry and we're going to be talking to him about his new tour which is called the escape plan what's your reason to be cheerful my reason to be cheerful is that i was in harrogate yesterday um doing a book thing a spa town harrogate isn't it yeah it was fun it was actually a crowd of all ages the youngest was 12 came up and and i signed his book at the end do you think you've been dragged along no actually no, my reason to be cheerful is a more like a little amusing thing, which is I was getting a very early train this morning to be back um, in Westminster to vote in Barry Gardner's private members bill, the fire and rehire bill, important bill. And uh, so I got a really early train and the very nice man had the reception. He said to me, he said, well, look, I've made a, spe- uh, even though the kitchen, the restaurant's not open, I've made a, I've done a special um, takeaway breakfast for you, some fruit and a bacon sandwich. I knew it was coming. <laughs> so I chuckled to myself inwardly. Um, That's good. That shows healing. It was completely unconscious. I mean, it was sort of not uh, sort of, you know, it was not, I hear you like, I gather from the photos, you like bacon sandwiches. Uh, I'll leave it as a mystery as to whether I actually ate the bacon sandwich or not and whether there are pictures. <laughs> What's your reason to be cheerful? Sprouts are back. I noticed this morning. Not just for Christmas. Love a Brussels sprout. They're for life. They're not just for Christmas. Honestly, as I get older, I can find a lot of joy in waiting for the season of something to roll around, be it the season of a TV show or the season of a particular food. And I felt a level of excitement at seeing Brussels sprouts back in the shops this morning that the 25-year-old me would have been disgusted at. He would have thought, what have you become? And what will you do with the sprouts? Do a very good Brussels sprout risotto. I also just, I like them a little bit blackened with salt. Very simple. Brussels sprouts and miso. Let me ask you this question. Does Gene eat Brussels sprouts? I haven't been able to uh, uh, tempt him with sprouts yet. I think it's genetic. I think if you have your DNA tested, it can tell you whether you are genetically predisposed to enjoying a sprout or not. Okay, I think that is like call my bluff. You know, this, I, I mean, like a, that is like a 1980s reference. That is no, bluff. I, I am sure. You are, I'm you sure are that Frank, we must have. Actually, you look a bit like Frank Muir. I've suddenly realised, but uh, <laughs> you are actually Frank Muir. Uh, for those of our, our younger listeners, won't mean much to them. And this is called my bluff. That I do not believe it's like genetic. Whether you like, no, Brussels I'm telling sprouts. you, we, I'm telling you, we will have very intelligent genetic scientists who listen to this program who will be able to confirm. So, if you went to one a- of those genetic analyzing companies, they'd be like, "Yeah, you've got the sprout liking <laughs> gene." I mean, come on! I mean, you must think I was born yesterday, really? I mean, if somebody could send us an article on that to uh, to confirm to my uh, right honourable friend. That he's being unnecessarily cynical. Never mind the Brussels sprouts appearing. That is like an April Fool appearing in October. <laughs> You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to start by talking to Eric Kleinenberg, who's a professor of sociology at New York University and author of a number of books, including Palaces for the People How to Build a More Equal and United Society. Eric, hello. Hello from New York City, where equal and united are very far from reality at the moment. <laughs> well, you, you were, you're a great believer in the, in the power of shared 
public spaces, including libraries, which we're going to come on to talk about. But you, you became interested in this whole area through researching the 1995 Chicago heat wave. Now, I think people might be thinking that that doesn't sound like an obvious way into the subject. So can you tell us a bit about that story and how it inspired you? I grew up in Chicago and, you know, Chicago, you know, it's a famous uh, industrial city. It was kind of the great American city, the the Manchester of the United States, we like to call it uh, without the good football. But we um, we also kind of thought of ourselves as a city of neighborhoods and strong social ties where, you know, the civic world works. People know their neighbors. And so I was struck when in the summer of 1995, a fairly short heat wave, it lasted about three days hit Chicago and just tore the city apart. It, it produced a staggering toll. I mean, thousands in excess of the norm uh, hospitalized and 739 people died. And I was totally puzzled by this event, you know, as a, as a child of the city. And I went back and I started asking people what had happened. And at first, you know, I got these strange responses from people who were wondering whether it was really real. You know, they were, they were literally questioning whether the, this disaster had happened, even though there had been something like 10 refrigerated trucks storing the bodies in the center of the city. Uh, but, but, but then I wanted to understand, like, well, who died and where did they die? And I got interested in this whole question about public spaces, because what I, what I observed is that the neighborhoods in Chicago that were really deadly... Uh, we're, we're not just, you know, poor and black and segregated, uh, which is what you would expect in a, in a crisis like that in Chicago. They, they, they were also abandoned, depleted. They had lost population. They had lost their diners and coffee shops and grocery stores and churches and neighborhood organizations. They, they really felt bombed out. And, and, and I knew this because I also found a whole set of neighborhoods that were you know, black and segregated and poor. On, on paper, they looked vulnerable in every way. You would have predicted they'd have massive deaths, but they turned out to be the safest places in Chicago, actually safer than the wealthier neighborhoods up on the north side. And the reason is because that they had a robust, you know, what, what I came to think of as social infrastructure, this set of physical places that can support our, our interactions if they, if, you know, if we maintain them and build them well. And that really turned me on to the fact that social infrastructure matters in ways we typically don't understand. So, so we, that, that's a phrase that we hear used in a, a couple of different contexts. So when, when you talk about social infrastructure, what, what are the specific things you're talking about? And, and explain to us how libraries are a part of that. I'm glad you said that because it's, it reminds me that the US and the UK are you know, two, two nations separated by a common language. When you talk about social infrastructure, you, you know, you're referring to the health sector and the education sector and things like that. I, I have a more kind of precise kind of, I don't know, idiosyncratic way of defining it. So when I talk about social infrastructure, I mean the physical places that shape our interactions. And the argument I make in, in Palaces for the People is that when you design social infrastructure well, when you invest in it, when you build it well, when you maintain it, you get all kinds of returns to collective life, to democracy. It, it, it encourages the building of relationships. It supports bridging relationships across groups. Um, it, it can help to build trust. And it obviously builds kind of the fundamental kinds of social support that keep people alive in a heat wave or whatever crisis is coming next. At the same time, if we neglect social infrastructure, imagine you live in a society where they said, you know, we don't have money for libraries anymore. We're going to shut them down. We're going to sell them off to condo developers. You would have diminished returns 
to collective life. You know, people would be less likely to use them, more likely to get on their phones, more likely to kind of shrink from the public and retreat into their safe houses, you know, which I think are part of the problem. Well, well, it's sort of interesting because in some ways it feels like a symptom of the of the, the modern age that if we are all staring at our screens a bit more, we're doing a lot of online shopping, the the physical places that where we're mixing with people other than our immediate social circle it seems to be given less and less thought. I think that our experience in the pandemic has really given us a wake-up call because we now understand what life is like when we're reduced to face-to-screen interactions all the time. You know, I mean, we know what remote life is like, and there are virtues of remote life. I mean, it's not a horrible thing to skip the office on you know some days. But the truth is, I think most of us feel like we have lost something that makes us fundamentally human. We'll, we'll come on to some of your favorite examples of libraries, I'm sure. But just more, more generally, what does a library need to be to meet your definition of social infrastructure? Because sometimes they can be places that are used for very, by very specific uh, sections of the community, but perhaps not that widely used. So, so I'm a scholar. I teach at New York University. And a few years ago, I was visiting Oxford for a, an academic meeting. And I wanted to go see this extraordinary library, Bodleian Library. Bodleian, I always get it wrong. But it's whatever it is, it's a damn impressive library they have there. And I wanted to go in. And they wouldn't let me in the place. You know, I didn't have the right ID card. I was not an Oxford citizen, student, faculty. That's, and that's an amazing institution. And thank goodness we have it. Scholarly libraries are, you know, so important. But it's not exactly the kind of library that I'm thinking of here. I, I'm referring to public libraries. And the great virtue of public libraries, in the, and not all societies have them. The U.S. does. The U.K. has a diminishing supply. It, is that they're open. They, they are accessible. They are free for everyone who wants to enter in. You know, they're, they're staffed by these magical people called librarians. And their job when, you know, is, to, is to, to ask, you know, how can I help you when you walk in? And that doesn't mean, you know, can I get you a, a, a grande latte, you know, or a matcha tea? It means, like, how can I actually help you? They're not trying to sell you something. What I love about libraries is, and, and my book is called Palaces for the People because that was Andrew Carnegie's you know, phrase for what a library could do. And, and the notion is that the library should exalt you. It should lift you up. You know, the classic Carnegie libraries, you generally have to go up a couple of stairs or a ramp uh, to, to get in because they are literally taking you up off the street, off ground level. And they have, you know, big ceilings and big windows. And the, the notion is that a great library should dignify the user so that when you walk in, you feel like your humanity has been acknowledged, that you are being respected fundamentally as a person. And what's so special about that is there are very few places in society that do that to us these days. And so I think what happens in libraries and what makes them such tremendous social infrastructure is that they welcome people of all ages, of all stations, ethnic group, racial identity, uh, social class, and they provide a range of programs that, that teach us how to be citizens and how to live together. You don't have to go to the library because you want to befriend the other people at your table. Sometimes you, you know, they're on the machine that you want to use. Sometimes they've got the book that you want. It's very annoying to have people like that. But they teach us, just like riding on the tube teaches us this, you know, how to live with other people. And and on to examples. Um, 
I wonder if you could tell our listeners about the the libraries in Brooklyn <laughs> that connected pensioners uh, in, a, in a way that you might not expect in a library. I think it's so fantastic. I discovered that at the Brooklyn library system, they have invented this thing they call library lanes. And library lanes is a brilliant idea. They, they basically have set up a virtual bowling league for pensioners. And people have not just the kind of grand libraries in New York, like the one that you've seen on movies with the big lions and granite at the front. There's also all these branch libraries, you know, the neighborhood libraries. And all the, a whole bunch of neighborhood libraries in Brooklyn have their own bowling league. And if you join as a pensioner, you get a bowling jersey. You have a regular time, like once a week. You go on Thursday morning. They, the librarian hooks up a flat screen television to a, an Xbox or Wii or some, you know, some gaming device. And the library teams compete against other library teams. And man, it was as good as a, a Chelsea football match. You know, it was really just like really amazing to be in this room. And I, I am, I am a diehard uh, football fan, so I don't say that lightly. It really, like, it felt amazing to be in the room with them. And, and one reason is that the people who come, they're the people who are most likely to die alone in the heat wave. You know, that they're older people. They often live alone. They're disconnected from a lot of institutions, and the library is a place. Uh, that connects them to other people. And so the question for us, you know, sometimes I think when we, when we deal with social problems, we think like, how can we change the culture? You know, how can we change the way people think about things and behave? Well, and we do it without realizing that we're all context dependent. You know, that we, if, if, if we have to create situations. And one way to create situations is by building amazing places. If we don't have the places like you know libraries and playgrounds, you know for for families and athletic fields that are accessible and schools that have you know yards that are pleasant, things like that. If we don't have that, you don't have the elements you need to create a civil society and an open society and a place where people trust each other and trust the government to do the right thing. And what happens is people turn on the very idea of an open society. They turn on the very idea of democracy. They start to distrust this whole game. Because it can feel here sometimes like a lot of people have given up on the noble idea of, of libraries as a thing of the past and and see them as a bit of an anachronism in, in the digital age, even though there's this fondness for the library. What What is the key to thinking about libraries of the future, to understanding what, what they can be as a public space, as social infrastructure? What, what is the thing that will unlock for people how, how to think about libraries? I mean, I would say, first of all, go to one and see what's happening. I mean, I can't say what's happening in British libraries at the moment because, you know, your society has really assaulted your libraries. I mean, the the divestment of libraries in England is a national scandal. And I mean, literally, when I speak around the world about libraries, exhibit A for what not to do is England. But, you know, they, to, to see libraries, you know, have their budgets slashed, to see them depend on volunteer labor because, you know, funding for librarians is gone, to see them literally be sold off and developed as, you know, private market goods where it's a scandal. It's a, it's a scandal. Uh, in contrast, you know, look at what they just did in Oslo. You know, look at what they just did in Helsinki. Look at what they just did in Calgary or uh, Edmonton or Vancouver or, or Austin, Texas. I mean, there are societies that are building glorious libraries as testaments to what social democracy can produce. Uh, but, but societies that are decent societies invest in ordinary people. You know, they invest in 
working class people. You know, they invest in multi-ethnic communities. They invest in neighborhoods. They create, you know, they create opportunities. And that is literally what you see, uh, I think, in libraries, you know, more than any other institution. Well, you are a tremendous champion. It's been so interesting to talk to you. Uh, Eric, thank you very much. Hey, I really appreciate it. Take care. So I'm delighted to say that we're now joined by Marie Ostergaard, who is Library Director of Aarhus Public Libraries in Denmark. How's my pronunciation of Aarhus? That's pretty good, actually. Thank you. How about how about his Ostergaard? It's it's a good English pronunciation of my last name, so I'm I'm fine with that. What's the real? Go and give us the what I should have said, Marie. So my my last name in English in Danish is Ostergaard. Ostergaard. Yeah, and the name of the city is Aarhus. Aarhus. Now, now we're talking about your incredible library, which is not so much a library, but a definitely a sort of palace for the people. But Jeff wants me to ask you about the robot car park. Well, that's funny how there are actually quite a lot of men who are very interested in that yeah. robot car park. Yeah, uh, it's it's a big tourist attraction. No, uh, no kidding. It is actually quite great. It is an opportunity to have a lot more parking spaces in a very small place under underground. So we have twenty car elevators. Now, talk to us about the um, the library itself. Uh, it's 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 called. Um, I'm going to do a bad pronunciation again. Pronounce the name of the library. Doc One. Doc One Library. Um, you could have got that ad. I know. I know. I just. D O K K. I'd lost my confidence. Lost Jeff. your confidence <laughs> completely. What is the vision behind Doc One, uh, and what kinds of things can visitors do at the library? Well, you started saying by it's a, that it's a palace for the people, which I'm obviously very thrilled about. But I would definitely say that it is a library. I, I don't use phrases like it's not just a library. It is a library because this is what we believe a library should be. It's a place where you come, you can borrow books, you can read, you can do all the traditional library stuff. But it's also a place for debates, for meetings, for performances, for maker activities, laser cutting, authors telling stuff, but also just regular people sharing with each other the knowledge that they have. We also have citizen services in Luck One, which is where you get come to get your passport and your driver's license. There's a cafe, big auditoriums, and there are also spaces where people can borrow rooms, auditoriums, meeting rooms for their own purposes. And how important is the... I mean, the library is the core, obviously. I, I'm not about to say it's not just a library. Well, I am about to say it's not just a library, but, but it is a library and other things too. What, 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 why? All the things that we are is what a library is. A library is about knowledge. A library is about learning. It's about experience. It's about culture. And, you know, in, in the old days, all of these things came in books, right? This was a way for people to get access to all of these things were through free books in libraries. But today, knowledge and learning and culture comes in many different formats and very much through people sharing with each other. So that's why we've enlarged the the different opportunities of what a library should and can provide. And talk to us about the story behind the design process, because I think there was a 10-year process which you were very involved in of planning Doc One. And it's, it's beautiful. I mean, it's the most yeah. incredible-looking building. So the whole idea was basically to create not a space for books, but a space for people. Not saying that we don't have books. We have tons of books. And, and books are also part of this. But 
it's a space for people and it's, it has to take its starting point in people's needs because that's what public libraries should do. So we spent 10 years making uh, user involvement processes, co-creation with citizens, co-creation with partners around what should this library be and what would be the right library for Aarhus. Talk to us about this notion that there's both a community centre and a democratic space. What does that mean, a democratic space? So basically, the, the way we look at libraries is that it's it's a it's one big mashup it's a big framework around tons of different kinds of activities not necessarily carried out by the library but also by our partners and by the citizens so for instance in doc one you'll find 140 different programs a month and 50 percent of those are carried out by or with partners partners being also groups of citizens right so the diversity of the different activities going on in doc one is enormous and a lot bigger than if it was just us so when we talk about the library as a democratic space, it's basically um, a place where we support participatory culture. So when I talk about democracy, I'm not necessarily talking about voting or political processes. I'm talking about participatory democracy. How can we as libraries help people be and stay competent in their own lives and have influence on the community and society that they're a part of? So, so what does that look like? If I was a citizen of Aarhus, how is the library helping me engage with and stay connected with the, the democracy? Many different ways. You can access in, in the physical premises, you can access through our different digital uh, platforms. And so we have a lot of what we called unprogrammed spaces in Doc one, which means flexible spaces that can be redone to fit the need of, for instance, if you want to come in and do a choir singing something like that. We will find the space for you and we'll set up a program around it. So you can come and do stuff for your own group, but you can also come and do stuff that way you share it with others. And that's that's the beauty of it. So we try to take it out in the open spaces so that people will stumble upon something they didn't necessarily expect in a library. Eric was saying that he thinks of England in, in particular, uh, maybe the United Kingdom, as an example of how not to run your library system. <laughs> how, how important is what the central government decide in Denmark with regards to uh, libraries as opposed to local municipalities? We have uh, a library legislation, and obviously that is a national one, and obviously that is very important for libraries, even though they're funded by the municipalities. I think that a national government sets a tone for the value of institutions, and I think that is the tone that the municipalities lean against when they're then defining how to spend the money in the municipality. So I think it's quite important. I'm sorry to agree with Eric on this one, because actually, I think the UK has have had some enormously successful libraries over many, many years, and it's just been a really hard decline on that. But there are some really amazing libraries in, in the UK as well still. And I think some of them have managed to reinvent themselves. The Manchester Public Library is really amazing. The idea stores in London, a reinvention of what a library is. So there are great examples of how libraries also in the UK manage to move forward, even though they're not very well supported nationwide. And and um, you also run an international conference about the future of libraries. What elements of, of, of digital life mean that we have to reframe how we have to think about the library? I want to say that libraries for me are both digital and physical. So we have ebook lending uh, digitally 
in every part of the country uh, for free. But I think we also have to acknowledge that what happens in the physical spaces are unique. In libraries, that's where you meet across all the different personal backgrounds that you have in a non-commercial space. And for us, that's something that we have to keep uh, focusing on because that's really important for our coherence in society. We collect all the ideas that we hear on the podcast uh, into what will hopefully be a manifesto for a utopia in the future. We call it the Jeffocracy. If, if we were to make you Minister for Libraries, if, if you think about what governments can do straight away to, to transform what libraries are able to offer to their communities, what would you do? What would you implement on day one? Is it, is it just resources? Is it just a money tap or is there more that government can be doing? No, it's not just resources and money. It's, it is really about intent. I think I would demand that libraries, that libraries would create spaces for meetings and debates. It's actually part of the library legislation in some countries. We're very high on the trustworthy scale. If you, if you ask people who are trustworthy, libraries are really up there. And that's because we're not trying to sell people anything. We're actually trying to make people better at their own lives. So why not use this for the best purpose at all, namely bridging people and knowledge, people and ideas, and people and people. I would also give them a shitload of money, to be honest. Well, uh, you've got the job, and I'm desperate to come and see that Doc One. It's a spectacular building. I don't even drive, but I want to see the robot car park. Thank you so much for for telling us about what you've been doing there in Aarhus, Uh, Marie. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Well, we're going to finish our chat by trying to find some reasons to be cheerful here in the UK. And to help us with that, we have Isabel Hunter, who is Chief Executive of Libraries Connected. Hello. Hi, hello. Thanks for asking me onto your podcast. Well, well, thank you for coming on. And um, I say to try and find us some reasons to be cheerful. It's because talking to both Marie and Eric, you get the impression that at some point the the UK was a bit of a, a beacon when it came to libraries. And then in recent years, obviously with austerity, uh, things have become a bit more difficult. So why don't you just start by telling us about Libraries Connected and, and the work you do? And you can, you know, you can you can show us that there's something to be hopeful about going on here that might not be uh, initially visible. Yeah. So um, Libraries Connected, we're the membership body for public libraries in England, Wales, Northern Ireland and the Crown Dependencies. Uh, we're also funded by Arts Council as a sector support organisation. So we offer training and development to libraries and we try and get in more funding. We advocate for them. And I've just come back from our annual two-day conference and I've come back absolutely bursting with cheerfulness. Well, that, that's that's so interesting. So we've, I mean, we, we've been talking about the uh, austerity here in the UK and the cuts that libraries have faced. And of course, we're, we're coming off the back of the pandemic. Where where is this optimism coming from? Where is this cheerfulness coming from? Do you know we had, we had some really powerful presentations at our seminar about some really you know these crushing social problems that we face coming out of the pandemic. So we heard about destitution, digital exclusion, the gap in literacy levels for children. We heard about loneliness. You know some of these really massive problems that the pandemics made worse and made those gaps bigger. But what's made me cheerful, the library people coming out of those sessions were not downcast. They were really kind of fired up and they were all saying, 
gosh, there's so much my library could do to help here. I'm, I'm going to go back at the end of this, you know, end of this conference. I'm going to go back to the ranch and I'm going to get plans in place. And can you talk to us a little bit about who the people are in the community who you feel perhaps, I know the libraries are for everybody, but uh, who, who need it most to perhaps get a bit overlooked when we're, we're talking about libraries? I think that's, you know, kind of the real challenge at the heart of library work. Libraries aren't just about the buildings and the books and the resources. They are about the people and the connections and that, that sort of social like community building that they do. So again, really interesting in, in the pandemic how libraries went about that. You know, they couldn't necessarily visit um, houseband people to deliver books. So they instead started picking up the phone and making keeping touch calls. There's one library that started a letter writing project to people isolated at home. And really, you know, really moving stories back from, from, from that period. So one lady said she, she sat down and cried after the library had phoned her up because it, she couldn't believe that somebody had remembered her, you know, in the dark first days of lockdown when she felt forgotten, someone had remembered her. And another chap who's, whose elderly mother had died, and he lived with her, and he had no one else to talk to about it, about his bereavement. So the library started phoning him every single day just for a chat so he could go through that process with them. So I think libraries are, are really, really good at knowing their communities and thinking about um, pe- people in, in more need. Do you think there's a bigger job of work to be done in in getting the public to think about libraries differently? Because I think, you know, probably a lot of people still think of them as very quiet places where you go to bury your head in the books and, and you, you, you still have that association of the, the shushing librarian. How do we go about getting people to think differently about these great resources that can be at the heart of their town or city? Yeah, you're right. I think it's a very powerful word, isn't it, library? So people do have this stereotype. And sometimes I wonder when when did this stereotype actually exist? Because actually talking to some people who've worked in libraries a long time, you know, even back in the olden days, someone was talking about a circus skills workshop that they ran in a library in the 80s. So, you know, the, the kind wow. of shush library, I think has been long gone but yeah we've been doing lots of discussion about could a national marketing campaign help you know come and see your library see what's going on so i think it, i think it's a really big challenge isn't it how you you flip over an idea that that, that maybe was unfair to start with well we're talking about um you know national schemes that's something we've not really touched upon is the role of government in all this. Now, we, we've mentioned the cuts that libraries have faced over the past 10 years or more, but what what could government be doing to better support public libraries? The challenge for public libraries and government it is a kind of a bit of a structural challenge. They're part of local government, 90% of their funding comes from local government, and then they generate about 10% through other sources. So that the, the you know, embedded there in local government, which in some ways makes them quite resilient. So although we have had all these cuts, we haven't lost any whole library services. Is it something we have a right to as citizens? Is there, is there anything sort of enshrined anywhere that uh, there will be this many libraries per population in any given local area? Yeah, absolutely. So we've got the 1964 Public Libraries Act. So it's a responsibility of local authorities to offer in the famous words of the Act, comprehensive and efficient library service, whatever that means to local people. Uh, but I think one of the challenges of the national level, libraries um, are under the arm of uh, Department of Culture, Media and Sport, which isn't one of the more powerful government departments. 
you know, be, be absolutely brilliant if the the role of libraries minister within government was more powerful and could be more successful at um, persuading government departments, persuading them, look, you can deliver your agendas around whatever it is, health or education, social mobility, economic growth. You, you can deliver those if you, if you put some investment into the library network. You know, we've got this amazing network, it's amazing infrastructure, um, relatively modest squirts of central government funding could really turbocharge that network. Well, what what if we we give you that role in our <laughs> podcast Utopia of the Jeffocracy? There you are, day one. Um, what what do you do? So I'd get the uh, secretaries of state from some of the other key departments, so um, health, education, um, local government, um, business. I'd get them round the table and I'd say, right, you each need to put X million pounds into libraries because health, libraries can really help sort out loneliness or help prevent that. They can help keep older people active. So that's going to save you, you know, a massive amount of money. It's going to help you meet those agendas. So I'd work around the table like that. And then um, I'd have a big hat in the middle of the table. So before they were allowed to leave the room, they'd have put into the hat the amount of money that they were going to channel through libraries. And then hopefully, two years down the line, they'd realise that that... Um, investment was well worthwhile because it's bearing dividends in the amount of uh, social impact it's having and um, a positive impact on people's lives. Fantastic. Well, I'll send Ed, Ed out to get the big hat then. That's all we need. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, as I said, we feel a little bit bleak about the situation in the UK talking to, to both Marie and Eric, but uh, you've rectified that. There's some good stuff going on. I think, and- I think there's just such innovation and determination. And I think um, because, the, you know, there has been costs, austerity has been, you know, it's, it's, it's grim, isn't it? It's horrible having to operate like that. But I think we need to look past that. And I think in the UK, we can be massively proud of library practice and library work. Every time you pass a library, you need to feel a surge of pride and enormously cheerful. Brilliant. Isabel, thanks so much for talking to us. Great, thank you. So I'm conscious that I was somewhat the silent partner in some of those interviews. Um, What did you think? I'm really convinced at the role that libraries can play. And, uh, you know, this, this is Eric uses the phrase social infrastructure to mean the shared public spaces and the roles they play in our communities. I think libraries can be really important in that. And it's something we've touched on in, in different ways in a lot of episodes, I think. But if you think about how we're living online a lot more and, and shopping online and uh, about how we remember we talked about town centres and how do you maintain a social cohesion? I think if we start thinking about libraries in the way that Marie and Eric was talking about and in the way that Isabel are saying, there's no shortage of ideas for that in this country. I think libraries can be really important in in giving our communities some, some sense of cohesion. I think this issue of public space, I think you're completely right, is just way underestimated. Good quality public space gives people an impression of the extent to which they're valued by the society, by the country. Do you know what I mean? If so many of the places we used to be mixing with each other and mixing with each other gives us empathy and a sense of being part of a society and and a, a local community, if so many of those have vanished or the nature of them have changed, then what, what replaces them? 
and and Marie used this phrase, a non-commercial space, a place for you to use and be with people that isn't trying to make money out of you is is uh, is a great thing. Email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to Be Cheerful Podcast. 
So that was two hours out of a recording day. Usually they skived off on non-essential days. If, in fact, um, uh, if Caroline didn't want to write, as you probably remember, uh, we'd go shopping. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know that when we did the uh, first episode of The Royal Family, which Craig Cash uh, and Caroline and I wrote, um, because we're from uh, council estates, we were able to actually write it um, authentically. And if we hadn't, uh, it wouldn't have been popular. And it was basically Caroline saying, um, what does your parents say? You know, what does your dad yeah. say? And we, we wrote down, I mean, a lot of those uh, um, for that first series is actual verbatim um, what mums and dads have said. And uh, uh, you probably remember fairly early on in the first episode, the, 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 the line, who's been phoning Aberdeen? And, uh, uh, you know, all, all our dads were very careful with money. <laughs> when it got to the screen, the warmth is so obvious. Yeah. But it doesn't, does, you know, it's, it's, it's shown, not told in that way. Well, it is. And they, they tried to make it uh, something they could understand. So they, they said to us, um, can we have a plot in the second episode? And we said, it's not a plot in the first episode. What are you talking about? Because it was all done in real time. So if you made a cup of tea... The, the scene would take as long as it takes to make a cup of tea because, you know, it was done. So it was half an hour out of the life of uh, a family that lived on a, um, well, Withenshaw, essentially. And they were trying desperately to to put it into terms and be going, oh, I've not got my trousers on and, and the vicar's coming for tea. And you go, well, put your trousers on and say hello to the vicar. <laughs> it's not a problem. I remember Caroline saying, where do, where do these people live, Coincidence City? Yes, yeah. And what about that question of gatekeepers, though, Henry? If, if it, like, There was a great quote that I remember hearing, and I, I, you know, I'm sort of both paraphrasing it and I can't attribute it, but it was along the lines of like, a lot of television is what people who've been to university think that people who haven't been to university want to watch. I don't know whether you know, but incidentally, uh, when Steve Coogan and I set up uh, Baby Cow, I think we were the first working class comedy producers to set up a company um, that hadn't been to Oxford or Cambridge. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. And and what a company, you know, it was, and I guess continues to be, I know you're no longer involved, but like Mighty Boosh, Gavin and Stacey, uh, Alan Partridge, and trying to think what else, Nighty Night, Marion and Jeff, which I loved so much. Yeah. Well, well, I, I did, um, so I, I created it with Steve and I did uh, uh, 17 and a half years. And then uh, five years ago, I uh, retired from television uh, to, uh, um, spend more time with the family as politicians would say uh, and uh, and and now you're uh, sick of them no no sure, right <laughs> so you're going out on tour well we have had lockdown i mean we we've, well. we've seen more of family i'm i'm sure everybody's seen more of family and more of their home than they bargained for Let's talk about the tour then, because presumably you must have had the the itch to perform during those years you were producing all these shows well i didn't have i didn't have time uh, jeff the thing was that uh, from uh, if you probably remember when i worked with caroline and craig um i also uh, was writing for steve coogan at the time so i'd be writing at weekends i'd be writing in my lunch hour i'd be writing at night um and uh, you know if you think of all those early paul calf and the coogan's run and the tony farino and all those i was writing those at the same time as the mrs merton's and the uh, you you would be amazed at how often Tony Farino's, which is a character of Steve Coogan, how often the the song "Other Men's Wives" is in my head. 
Oh, right. Well, so yeah, it's stuck yeah. in my head all the time, that thing. Then when uh, I started uh, uh, Baby Cow with Steve, um, it was just full on. I mean, we made 450 television programs and uh, over a dozen films in 17 and a half years. So, you know, it, it, we, we went from nothing to being um, the leading supplier of comedy to the BBC uh, within about five years. Which leaves no time for, for live performance. When I first knew you and knew of you, um, you'd be like a mainstay at festivals, doing uh, poetry slash comedy around Manchester. Um, and I always, yeah, I, I always loved it. it. It seemed like a funny time because that there was you, there was Lem Sisse, John Hegley. I don't know if he's your nemesis or not because you're sort of in the same no, space. I, not your nemesis. I don't, I don't have nemesis. I love John Eggley. John Eggley's, I think, probably the funniest poet uh, in the world. Yeah, and, he's brilliant. Uh, uh, he's great. And and, and Lem uh, um, uh, is like a brother to me, and uh, we still keep in touch. And uh, um, uh, I saw him recently when he was uh, he was the director of the Brighton Festival, so we, we spent some time together. Uh, I mean, Lem's become an international poet. God bless him. I was trying to think how, how to explain, for people who know the name but haven't seen you or heard the Radio 4 show, how to explain what it is to to see Henry Normal on. I know it's an awful thing to ask you to put you on the spot. Now, I used to go see you 20-odd years ago when, you know, as I said, a man with a cardigan who I think had, like, lots of warm, lovely, very funny observations about just the, like, the minutiae of life and love. I think since then... You've, you've incorporated a lot of your family story into it. I can see, I think you're sitting in front of a, a painting done by your son, Johnny. That's you, right, you've yeah. told stories about your, your family in the, the Radio 4 show. So is is that what people can expect, a, a combination of that kind of funny stuff of life and then more more of your story from your family as the years have gone on? Uh, well, yes. What I try to do is a bit like the radio shows, is I pick a theme. Uh, um, and uh, obviously we're talking about uh, escape. So the escape into creativity is is part of the theme. Uh, the next show I'm going to be doing for uh, Radio 4 is a normal ageing. So there's some uh, stuff about ageing. Uh, um, and, uh, and, and then there's just uh, a mix of uh, jokes and stories and poems um, about everything, love, family, home, dreams, everything that sort of uh, gives a rounded view of life. And uh, I, I love doing that, but uh, I, I can't um, sort of become a tribute band to myself, just sort of do all the old stuff. I, I have to keep writing new material and, and uh, expressing myself with new material. So uh, the 22 dates I've got, the show at the beginning won't be the same show as the show at the end. Henry, it's it's such a treat to know that you're back out on tour again. I'd I'd really love to come and see you, and uh, I just want to say to people that you're guaranteed a special evening. It's it's funny, but um, Henry's something else. It's it's really special. So it's a joy to talk to you again after all these years. Thank you very much, and and to you. Apologies from Ed. That's all right. I'll uh, I'll catch him when he's uh, he's back in uh, Downing Street. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're in the outro. How did you think Sarah did last week? Brilliantly. Did you listen? Yeah, I thought. I thought. <laughs> I thought I'm surplus to requirements. She um, obviously was a somewhat last-minute stand-in, and she was worried she was going to take the whole podcast down, and people would be angry at her for being on it. And she felt completely ill-adept to being here. No, she did really well. So, have you listened to our new podcast yet? Then no. What is it? 
We're doing a succession after show podcast called Fire Crotch and Normcore. You serious? Yeah, where we talk about that week's episode of Succession and and read out listener email because we're obsessed with it. How's it going? Really well because other people are obsessed with it as well. Um, so we're getting great email from people and we're sharing all these theories and and queries. Uh, I even saw your former colleague Alistair Campbell wrote a big piece about Succession. Was it called Fire Crotch and Normcore? Do you know who I mean if I say Tom and Shiv? Yes. So it is an insult uh, that is directed at Tom and Shiv from the obnoxious middle brother Roman in one of the episodes. That's so funny. For the, for the cover art, we've uh, we've uh, recreated a photograph of them, which I am quietly quite pleased with. That's really good. I'm going to listen to that, Jeff. That sounds like incredibly entertaining. It's fun. Should we thank our guests? We probably should. Thanks to Eric Kleinenberg, to Marie Ustergore. Is that how she said to say it, Ed? Yes. I think your pronunciation was very much a six out of ten. Oh, no, it's a generous six. And thanks to the wonderful Isabel Hunter as well, and great to talk to Henry Normal. His tour is called The Escape Plan. Emma Caution produces our podcast. Uh, Joel Pierce does all the research and finds such great people for us to talk to. Supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our idents. And the artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Big Ed. He's been a genetically engineered sprout. (laughs) And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. 